Welcome to the Truth About Things That Suck podcast. I'm your host, Mindy Henderson, living life from a wheelchair, surviving two devastating car crashes, lost jobs, and a host of other challenges. I've learned to navigate the curveballs life throws at us. And now, as a speaker, author, and coach, my mission is to bring positivity to the world, to teach others how to navigate adversity well, to stop making excuses, and to see all that they are truly capable of. Because the truth about things that suck is that, well, they suck. They won't be fun, but it's possible to have two truths that coexist at the same time. And the second truth is that there's a lot we can learn, a lot we can do, and a lot of gifts that the sucky things bring to our lives and that empower us to make the world a better place. This podcast is a tool I've created to help us uncover those sucky but surprisingly beautiful circumstances. Let's see what's on tap for today. I am so excited to have all of you here today and to have Mr. Dave Hollis here. Um, Today we're talking about fear and courage, something that we all struggle with in one form or another at one time or another. And as you know, Dave is a best-selling author, a speaker, podcast host, a coach, and an all-around nice guy. Thank you so much for being here today, Dave. You are welcome, Mindy. Thanks for being uh, part of my life. Thank you for inviting me into your community. I appreciate it. Excited to hang out with everybody today. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to dive right in and and shoot some questions at you. So, you know, your your latest book is Built Through Courage, which I've read and it's fantastic and relatable. And the way that you look at things is just so smart. The way that you break things down. I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And um, this is your second book. The first thing I want to ask you is why, with all of the topics, all the books you could have written, all the topics you could have picked, why did you choose to write a book on courage? Well, it's interesting because, well, number one, fear had been the most prominent emotion present in my life, throughout my life. And so as a thing to try and like dive into and understand, there was some selfishness and just wanting to myself get a handle on how might I? Dave, the human who was also trying to work my way through this life and become this better version of myself every day, tap into, cultivate, lean on the courage that I need to inevitably handle the things that are thrown my way. So that was one. Two, I started writing the book, like the conceit of the book originally was, hey, I wrote this book called Get Out of Your Own Way. I've represented that man starting with some self-awareness and understanding what lies you have to turn into truths or let go of, what stories you have to reframe, how to like think differently about the coping mechanisms that you previously kind of kept yourself connected to or whatever it might be. Um, once you've made peace with and found yourself now accepting who you are, where you are, now what? And so I started writing a little bit of a, once you establish kind of where you are, how do you cast a vision? How do you move forward? And my writing process, though it started in kind of February, March of 2020, also was interrupted itself by what ended up being a big life event in the end of my marriage and the necessity for me to also need to lean on courage in a way that I hadn't previously to continue to move forward during what was one of the harder times of my life. And so 
a lot of what you end up seeing in the final product of the book was a reflection of my processing how courage was this necessary ingredient in weathering something that was difficult so that that difficult thing could turn into one of the most important and meaningful things that now um, is complicit in who I've become and how I think of myself. Um, as it turns out, right, like fear being this leading emotion in my life, I think it's a super normal thing, number one, like normalizing that fear is just a part of our existence, especially if we're trying to reach for, do something that might have some meaning or leave some kind of legacy. But the recognition for me that fear surrounds every single part of my comfort zone, that like anything that I have familiarity with or have uh, in any way, anytime I've been stuck, my stuck has come usually because of my unwillingness to face my fear, to like retreat back into the safe, safe spaces that might not necessarily have me having to be triggered by it. And so the call for courage in some ways in this, you know, time in life where I am as interested as I've ever been and feeling connected to purpose and having some connection to um, honoring the intention of this creator who put me here for good reason. Um, it comes with this requirement of facing the fear that like a moat surrounds the island of comfort and deciding to push through it even though it will be scary, even though you will be triggered, even though you will have to be courageous to keep going until you get to learning and growth. And so uh, for anyone who has an appetite for living a full life, being closer to impact or purpose or honoring why they were put on the planet in the first place, courage is uh, arguably one of the most important ingredients you're going to need to have, and you're going to need to tap into it every single stinking day. Agree a hundred percent. And I want to dig into a, a number of the things that you said, but I, at the, the first thing in response to that, that I want to ask you is, you know, I'm in the middle of writing my, my first book and I have found the writing process to be very educational. It's kind of like journaling on steroids, you know? And so I, I've learned a lot about myself in the process. And when you put pen to paper and explore and organize and dig deep into your thoughts, I've learned a lot about myself and how I felt about things that maybe surprised me a little bit when I was writing this book. Did you learn anything about yourself that surprised you as you wrote this book? Yeah. I mean, the entire book is really a reflection of so many of the things that are learned in the decision to be courageous in the face of adversity. So I started writing the book, call it like February, March of 2020 right? Before I had an idea of everything that might happen in 2020, Ooh. pandemic, racial reconciliation, end of a relationship. Like there was, man, a lot of stuff that was coming around the bend. I had made this like super bold declaration that I was going to have my best year ever at the end of 2019. Like, hey, 2020, I'm a coming, save it for my 45th year. It is going to be the greatest thing ever. Thank you very much. I'm Sure, in some ways, I begged, invited, taunted the universe into bringing some of what moved forward, uh, you know, to move forward. But in the midst of like really experiencing this hardest thing I'd been through in the end of my marriage, I had to put the pen down because I wasn't in a place where I could focus on writing. I hadn't really experienced enough of how I was going to get through it to say anything about how I was going to get through it. And so there was a five or six month period where, and when I say put the pen down, I mean officially writing the book pen. I don't mean the journaling pen. I mean, I 
you know how it works, what works when you're turning in a book, you got to try and get to around 60, 65,000 words. I probably wrote 200,000 words in a notebook because every day I was for long windows of time writing down every single thing that I was thinking and every single thing that I was feeling and the way that I thought I knew I had faith until my faith had been so tested and it's not till you're forced to your knees that you really get to understand what faith really means. And I thought I had good habits and routines, but it's not until the world gets flipped upside down that you realize the importance of maintaining those or apply that to the relationships in your life or apply that to almost any aspect of life. And so for me, that like journaling process, that prayer process, that running process, that sitting on a rock in nature process, so many of those things bore out the insights that would avail themselves then in the book of, oh, hey, here's some of the things that I did in five or six months since I last was writing on this book. And as a result, I feel excited to be able to share with you some of the things that worked for me in the hopes that if you find yourself faced with things that feel overwhelming, they might in fact also work for you. And so, yeah, I mean, I learned a, an appreciation as a, for example, for health that I don't know that I fully had an appreciation for prior to what ended up being this hard, hard year, because I always thought, oh, you know, like health is an, as a nice to have, not a, like a, not a need to have. And it wasn't until I was in the middle of like, oh my goodness, I'm barely able to get out of bed on certain days, having a health routine that could allow me to create some momentum each day was a necessity so that in the midst of the muck, I just could keep putting one foot in front of the other until it started to change from feeling as hard or feeling as, as, as many headwinds until, you know, it took turning into something that was not now like, oh, I can do this. I know I can do this. And so the, the part of the book where I talk about those five dimensions of health and asking this question of what I need in this season was a super important thing. But to be honest, I didn't do prior to experiencing this hard window of time. But now that I was in it, what do I need physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, and spiritually in these next 90 days became something that just fundamentally transformed the way that I thought about my health on a holistic level and the answers to those questions became my daily routine, became my habits, my circle, boundaries, the kind of content that I could consume or not consume and, um, and was so important. But like that as a, for example, like that was an aha thing that was born out of, in some respects, survival mode. Um, yeah. In some respects, this decision to get up and chase after rebuilding my life after it was in some ways... Um, indistinguishable at the, in the aftermath of, of a relationship ending. My, my primary identity having been husband to her, my work identity having been tied because of the work we were doing in the business. In so many ways, I was starting from scratch. And so that scratch, though it felt like overwhelm at the beginning, it was ultimately this beautiful freedom to really create a choose your own adventure narrative of what was going to best serve the exploitation of my gifts and me living into why I believe God put me on this planet. 
I love, I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent, as I, I think you know, of trying to find the good in our hard experiences, and it, clearly you are too. And that can be, that can be a hard thing to do. But as you process emotions and fear and reality and all of the things, I try really hard to be intentional about the lens that I look at my challenges through. So, talk to me about how you've managed then, and you know. I, and I think your your previous answer, you were you were going in that direction, but how you've managed to find the good in your difficult times. And was there ever a time when you just couldn't, when there there was no good that came of this thing? Well, number one, I think time is the great equalizer when it comes to an ability to see why this happened or the how this was for me kind of question. There's plenty of times in the middle of it where you're like, don't tell me this is for me. This sucks. And I don't want to have to go through this. And I want to punch anyone who would try to convince me otherwise in the face. And I think that there is like reasonably, of course, like there's so many things that ended up happening in 2020 and 2021 that none of us would have opted for or wished for. And yet, after some length of time, we might have some appreciation, even gratitude for them having happened because of what we now can see were the positive benefits of them having happened. I know when I said that, you know, crazy thing, hey, I'm gonna have my best year ever. I, what I didn't appreciate was that I wouldn't get a say in the conditions through which my best would be brought forward. And I absolutely can now be so grateful and thankful for every single thing happening exactly as it did and hold at the same time that I never want to experience most of what ended up happening in the back half of 2020 because it was really hard and I was really sad. And I'll have some, <clears throat> I'll be on a grief journey for the rest of my life. It'll, it'll, you know, like change over time, but there will be, there will be things about my former self, former family dynamic that I'll grieve for the rest of time. And yet I know now that I am who I am and will be who I will be for the, you know, at the end of my life in so many ways because of what was born out of those hard things having happened. Um, I, you know, I'm, I happen to be a person of faith. It's interesting that I don't know that I appreciated this until having to go through the last year and a half. I, you know, was frustrated, like really frustrated with God. Like, God, I'm, I've been praying for these things and I've asked for these things and I've been a good person. I'm trying my hardest. Why in the world wouldn't you answer my prayer? And the reality is I can see now because of the benefit of time, how many of the things I'd prayed for were answered. They just didn't get answered in the way that I'd asked or hoped that they might. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way prayer works, right? That's not the way that the universe necessarily works, whether you're a person of faith or not. Um, a lot of times it takes time for us to appreciate that the thing that we needed most was delivered to us, even though it was a thing that we didn't enjoy or like having to necessarily have to go through. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that, I think that's where you start. The, the other side of it too is, you know, I, I was, I've been asked a lot, like, well, what's like one of the most important or what's the most important thing that you have to possess to make it through hard times? And the thing that I've tended to lean on is this idea of faith and not in this instance, religious faith, but like faith that the things that you need will be afforded to you along the way when you need the most, not when it's most convenient, not when you want them necessarily, but when you are meant to have them and that the things that you're meant to get from this will avail themselves when they're meant to be 
known. And that, that if you can have faith in that and you go into your day looking for signs that you are going to have the people, the little micro miracles, the connections, the aha moments when you're walking in nature, whatever it is. If you go out looking for evidence of that, you tend to find what you look for in the same way that if you go out and have the opposite kind of a mindset where you're like, oh, I am always the one that has to deal with this kind of stuff. Life is, you know, unfair for most, but it's more unfair for me. And you go out looking for evidence of that, you'll probably find some evidence to back up that hypothesis as well. And so I tended to try, even when it was hard, to just start my day with faith, this belief that something good was going to come, that some connection, some friend. And when I started looking for it, I found it. Like my this like text that I received every day from my pastor for the first couple of months was so meaningful and powerful, in part because it was this answer to the things I need will show up when I need them most. He sent this 11-word text. What small piece of sadness can I hold for you today, every day for eight weeks worth of time? And it was a miracle, literally a miracle when I needed it most. Like my buddy Brady showing up in the neighborhood when I needed a friend most felt like a miracle. Like I hadn't, I was asking for something. I wasn't asking for, uh, you know, a funny foursome in a golf cart to roll up on me while I was running and crying and, you know, trying to just make my way through a day. And here that's what ended up happening. And so I think if you can, in some ways, just go into, hey, this might not be the kind of situation that I want to have to work through, but I'm going to believe that I'm going to get through it. And I'm going to believe that the things I need will present themselves along the way. I think you'll find evidence of that and of the, what is this for? What is it, you know, how is this happening for me kind of evidence? I think it presents itself if you just go in believing that you'll find it. So good. So good. There's so much that I want to say about everything that you just said, but I think, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is that, you know, I talk a lot about the idea of sort of adversity being temporary and I've come up with sort of my own lens on adversity that makes, that allows me to look at it that way, because I think usually the hard things that we go through, it's, it can be, there can be almost a comfort to just knowing that, you know, there's a a beginning, a middle and an end to this, you know, and you're going to get to the other side, even though, you know, people would, would challenge me on that and say, you know, but there are things that are permanent, like my disability, you know, and I even have managed to find ways to look at my disability that are temporary because my disability is not actually my problem. It's all of the little side effects, all of the little mini challenges that come along with it throughout the day that I know there is, there's going to be a beginning, a middle and an end to this little mini challenge. And so that's, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where my head went as you were, you're talking through your thoughts. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because I, I was speaking yesterday at this event and uh, one of the things that the uh, event organizer had thrown out is that like, there's, there, people are a little bit weary, right? Like there's been a lot that we've been through. It feels like it's this like never ending rolling, like un- uncertainty, what's going to happen next? Are kids going to have to go back to virtual learning? Are we going to ever get out of, you know? And what, what I had to kind of offer is like change is a constant and yeah. certainty or, um, control was always an illusion. We just only have become aware of how much an illusion it is recently. And so if there's a way for us to just reframe the, the idea that we have control or the idea that like 
there is going to be a destination to quote unquote normal when normal again was never an actual <laughs> construct. We just convinced ourselves that it existed. Um, and instead, find ways for us to believe that we can, irrespective of the conditions, equip ourselves to handle whatever gets thrown our way. Uh-huh. We've now prepared ourselves for whatever. Because yeah. the guarantee in life is that you're going to experience additional change, whether you like change or not. Change is a constant, and you are going to have to do it. The change you choose or the change that will choose you, it's just a promise. And if you can change the way that you've thought about control or normal or certainty as things that are, you know, even constructs that exist, let alone things we have control over, um, it might afford you some freedom, some surrender to now walk into your day asking, how might I equip myself to handle whatever comes up as opposed to how can I engineer, put my thumb on the scale to try and change the way life shows up? Because Mm -hmm. uh, life doesn't care how you prepare. It is going to show up. Unfortunately, I wish it was, I wish there was some like thing you could do. Like, oh, if you just, you say these three mantras, you put on your shirt this way, and then you, you know, walk in, you know, to door frames, mumbling this thing. All of a sudden, then life is going to magically bend its knee to you. It's not. It's just not. Um, even though you might deserve it, even though it just, it, it's just not. So the question is more, how can I equip myself with the courage to keep moving forward when yeah. something unexpected shows up? How can I equip myself with the mindset to see the adversity that comes as an opportunity for me to grow? Because when I think about like every time I've had to face something that I didn't necessarily like or that would have been classified as adversity, those are also the times, it's a like one, one-to-one correlation. Those are also the times when I found myself becoming or growing or learning the most. You know, we're not, we don't learn in the absence of that friction. We don't learn in the absence of that discomfort. Yeah. If we can think a little bit about, oh, these are the ways that I become, then maybe we can see it as something of an invitation, or these are the, this is something of um, an opportunity as opposed to something to you know feel bad about or try to avoid. Yeah, and and so this this next question I want to ask you, it, it kind of dovetails off of what you're talking about, and then I want to dig into some of the maybe slightly more tactical things related to fear and courage and how to apply it in our lives. So I saw you you did this great book club after you launched your your book, and you went live every day, talked people through the book, and one of the things I saw you talk about was turning our liabilities into our superpowers. Powers. And so, you know, we talk about the growth that we can experience from adversity and, and um, fear and, you know, doing hard things. You know, this is one of my favorite things to, to talk about, because I actually personally believe that in terms of my personal success in life, my disability is actually one of the best things that could have happened to me. And so I kind of look at it as a superpower actually, rather than a liability, because it's instilled so much in me that's that's allowed me to navigate other things in my life. What what liabilities of your own have you managed to turn into superpowers? Well, I mean, I I operate currently in this, you know, kind of bizarre personal development space that I live inside of where talking honestly and vulnerably about 
my struggle or the things I've had to work through is something of a differentiator to some of how other people maybe have approached personal development in general. And so like, get out of your own way. Hey, let me tell you 20 stories of times when I did stuff I'm not necessarily proud of, or let me share with you some of the shame I possess for not having necessarily gotten things perfectly right. Like it's an unconventional kind of thing, but that's kind of the tip of the spear with what you're going to get from most of what I teach where, hey, I do want to inspire you and I want to give you answers, but I, I am, I'm as much a student as I am a teacher and I don't, you know, I don't believe that I'm even a tenth of the way along the journey of who I'm going to inevitably become. So sharing some of the things that I'm learning out of, out of the mistakes that I've made or out of the things that I've tried and not had go perfectly right out of like the insanity that sometimes shows up when you work yourself into exhaustion and do a terribly decided live stream for like two hours and then people make YouTube videos about it. Like I'll get to teach from those experiences because my human moments are some of the like richest sources of information that I'm able to now hopefully connect with other people and be like, Hey, I experienced this pretty good human. I'm doing my best. And also I still struggle in these areas and maybe in recognizing that it affords something of an empathy bridge that allows people to see themselves in my stories feel normal in that struggle and feel maybe just a little bit of hope because of some of the progress that I'm making, despite the fact that I'm still human. So I guess I would start with that. But, um, you know, like when I, when I think about the, the question, I tend to go into the business space first because there were so many times, especially in my corporate career, where I was given opportunity that I was not yet qualified for because of having represented myself as someone who could be thrown into a situation and would figure it out as he went, right? Like I often was managing people who had a lot more experience. Like sometimes I had people who had uh, tenure that was longer than the number of years I had been on the planet, right? Like, oh, you've been here for 32 years? Awesome. I'm 31 years old. Let me manage you. This is going to be a rad experience. But owning the amount of experience I had or didn't have or owning that, hey, because I wasn't brought up here and I don't know how we've always done things, that maybe there could be a benefit to my fresh eyes looking at this old problem um, was the only way that I could create any kind of trust because I think there's like a human instinct to try and convince people of your credibility or your um, the reason why you need to be here, like ego or imposter syndrome, like starts to like have you act in a way that would say, oh, I bet I can convince them. And I just think people are too savvy. They're too smart. And it doesn't actually create the kind of authentic intimacy that you want to try and create in a real relationship because you are projecting something that isn't an actual representation of who you are and your truth. And so I've just tended to stick to my truth. So like when I, you know, when I became the head of sales over at Disney, I was 36. My predecessor was 66. He had done the job for more than 30 years when he left. And so as I'm being introduced to Steven Spielberg or Jerry Bruckheimer or whoever, these guys have been in the business for almost the entire length, not even almost, the entire length of my life had all of their Disney experiences handled by someone who looked like he invented oatmeal. Literally, he looked like Wilford Brimley and was amazing, just like 
big old mustache. He wanted to give him a hug, talk about how you golfed with him last time. And then the tall dorky kid walks in. I'm like, hey, I'm going to take care of your $100 million movie. My name's Dave, and I just got here, you know? And so I had to find a way to own my liabilities, but turn them into something else so that they could be seen as strengths. And so for me, like the example of like replacing my predecessor, Chuck, when he walked into a room, he just said like, we should do this. This is good. And they were like, sounds good. Cause Chuck said it was good. And when I walked in, I was like, I'll admit it. I haven't been enough trips around the sun with your movies to tell you anything without data. And so my brand for you is going to be information rich. And in a way that Chuck didn't need to have an analytics team, I have these nerds right here. All they do is they, all they do is use calculators. They don't even have human contact. That's how much they love crunching numbers about movies. They just use calculators. That's what they're here for. And all they do in doing that is tell me how to help you because of the way that math is the great equalizer. And over time, I was able to establish something in relationship equity, but it was built on not trying to pretend like I could immediately jump into and fill Chuck's shoes, playing it the way that he played it. I, there's not enough rounds of golf, and I don't even like to golf. So I had to find a different way. But by owning it, I could just take some of the concern that they had, some of the poison they might use in criticism of me off the table and uh, establish something in honest relationship by just owning, here's who I am. And here's, how, here's why I think that my approach might actually be something that can even be uh, a benefit to you and the kind of time and money you're investing in these films, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. So while we're, while we're talking about, you know, sort of corporate life and, and your, your job, I also did a 20 year stint in the corporate world and high tech. And I knew a lot of people who had ambitions beyond what they were doing, but they were, they were afraid to go after them. They, you know, for whatever reason, they wouldn't apply for the job or, you know, volunteer for the, the project. Why do you think some people are so afraid to advocate for themselves in their career? And what would your advice there be? Well, I think, I, I, you know, number one, I think people are just afraid of pushing themselves into something new because of what ends up being something of a false promise that the, the way that things are will remain the way that they are the way that they will remain or that they will continue to be. Um, we don't anticipate that like there ever could be restructuring or, or layoffs or that the business could slow or that, you know, we just believe like, hey, the way that things are today is the way that things will be. And if I were to take a chance, I risk the possibility of having this uh, thing that I am falsely believing in perpetuity will be here for me, um, I put that at risk. And so I think the first thing is like, we have to find a way to appreciate that there is no such thing as a safe harbor. There is no such thing as like, a, it's, it will always be here. Anything has the chance of going away. And so it maybe takes a little bit of the stakes and changes them. Um, <laughs> I, I was telling the story yesterday when I was doing my speech about this Quote from Jim Carrey, I've, I've used it in coaching before, but he talked about the fact that his father could have been a great comedian, but he didn't think that it was possible. And so he ended up making this conservative choice. He became an accountant. And then when he was let go from the job, when he was, when Jim Carrey was 12 years old, he and his family had to do, frankly, like anything, everything, whatever to survive. And as much as um, it was hard, he said, like, I learned so many great lessons from 
my dad, not the least of which is that you can fail at doing what you don't want. So you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. Yes. And so I think that like, it, there's something that people, you know, hopefully can connect to that they, they may in fact get to the end of their life and play it safe and realize that man, safety came at the expense of exploiting their gifts or tapping into their passion or doing something that they love. And so the hope would be that um, their desire for doing something they love or their desire to do something that's more aligned with their purpose in life would be greater than their fear. Uh-huh. And of course, like it takes, it does, it takes courage, but um, sometimes it also takes leverage. Like sometimes it takes being confronted with the possibility of getting to the end of your life with all of your dreams left inside of you and not ever like having had the courage to breathe them out loud. Um, so I don't know, like the work that I do, you know, even just like sharing the stories of how, yeah, was it scary to leave Disney? Yeah, there was a guarantee there. I could have worked there for the rest of my life. I would have been miserable and probably died of drinking, you know? So like I could have, but um, I had to make a choice. Like, did I want to go do something that I love? I did. Was it scary? Yeah. Is it still scary? Of course. Like every time I try to do something new, it's it's a, it's a new scary. Like I'm, I'm doing this men's conference. It's three weeks from today. I'm terrified. Yeah. You know, like I've, it's, I've seen the agenda. I've seen the workbook. I've seen the welcome pack. I know all the people that are joining. It's amazing. And I've never done one that is my own. So it's terrifying, but I'm going to go do it yeah. because it is going to reveal pieces of what I love. And so, um, so, th- so there's that. The, the, the reason, though, why people tend to not advocate for themselves is that um, there's the, like, the chirping of their self-doubt or the chirping of their imposter syndrome that makes them wonder if they might be found out for not having all of the qualifications that are necessary to excel at the job. If they um, put themselves out there and were to get it, would they maybe be exposed as not you know, being the perfect candidate? It's a different situation or uh, an extra layer of complexity it gets thrown in there when you're talking about the difference between men and women. Men tend to uh, throw their hat in the ring if they have two of 10, three of 10 qualifications yeah. for a job. Women tend to wait till they have eight, nine, or 10 of the qualifications for the job. Mm-hmm. Why that is, you know, we don't have enough time in this, uh, <laughs> this interview to talk about, but right, like, like finding a way to um, embody a little bit of that, uh, I'm gonna figure it out as I go kind of thing. Richard Branson had this, you know, interview at one point in time that I saw, and it was like, you know, what would you say to someone who uh, doesn't necessarily have the qualifications but wants to do the job? Like, take the job. Figure it out once you get there. And I, t- I 100% believe in that. Any of the success that I had in my corporate career was a byproduct of believing that I would figure it out once I was in the role. And I was, you know, in a hubristically, <laughs> maybe gag reflex uh, kind of way at times. Like, I was like, I am the candidate. Trust me. I am the guy that you need in this job. Um, and that uh, kind of that blind belief and my belief that I would figure it out as I got uh, on the ground was a big part of how I got opportunities along the way. Yeah. Yeah, very true. And one of my mottos that I've sort of adopted over the last, I don't know, three years is, is you know, say yes and then figure it out. <laughs> Absolutely. Know? I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I've also learned over the years, you know, I've, I've thrown my hat in the ring before and not been selected and, and all of that. But, but what I've learned is that, you know, it stings, it doesn't feel great, but it didn't kill me. And it actually gave me more information about the skills that I needed to maybe go and develop. So, um, yeah. So let's talk for a second about, um, in, in the, in, in my upcoming book, I in the, the chapter on fear that I wrote, I wrote a lot about the concept of real fear versus what I'm kind of calling manufactured fear, you know, and I think that we all spend a lot of time with these loops playing in our heads, telling us about what might happen or what could happen and, and all of that. Do you think there's a difference in how we should approach real fear versus manufactured fear? Well, I'll tell you this, the body doesn't know the difference between real fear and manufactured fear. So like the first and most important thing for any of us to appreciate is that whether it's real or totally imagined, our body and our reactions to that fear is exactly the same because our brain just can't distinguish is this, is there actually a snake or is there not a snake or whatever it is that you've kind of conjured. So I think the, the important thing to realize is that Part of why we have to deconstruct imagined fear and jettison it is that your your reactions, your parasympathetic brain, like all of it, it reacts as though that fear was real. And so you have to find a way um, to deconstruct it so that it is not now something that you're thinking about. So I do think you have to kind of handle it differently. I, I know for me, like making a list of the things that I was afraid of in a world where the first casualty post-divorce was imagination, right? I just couldn't see what the future was gonna look like now that it certainly was not gonna look like it had. And the thing that was keeping my imagination suppressed was fear that was just smothering it. And so in order to resuscitate my imagination, I had to bring my fear into the light. So I made this list of fears, 46 fears, I was afraid of a lot of things. I'm brought them out so that at least I can now see like, oh, these are the things that have been suffocating my imagination. These are the things that are keeping me from hope. These are the things that are keeping me from um, feeling as excited today about what might happen tomorrow. I, you know, I use the quote in a couple of books now, Les, Les Brown's quote, hope in the future is power in the present. Yeah. And I just, I just really believe that like imagined fear, I mean, both kinds of fear, but like they are the thing that was suffocating my imagination such that I couldn't cast a hopeful vision for my future. And as a result, I was stuck in my present because I just didn't have any power. I didn't feel excited about what I was like working toward or moving toward. And so bringing that fear into the light was the first step. Oh, okay. I've created consciousness from something that may have in fact been living in my unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And now that I saw it, I could ask the question, are these fears real or are they imagined? And for me, it was like 70, 30, like 70% were actually imagined kind of things. It was like, once I wrote them down, is it, is it, do you really think you're going to die alone, Dave? Like you're pretty good dude. You've got four kids. Like one of them is going to still be around and take care of you when you're like, you're really, you think you're afraid of dying alone. Know what's yeah, got you, right? That's, right? Like, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And right. So then like when you actually see it, you can ask questions of it and deconstruct it. You're like, oh, okay, that's ridiculous. That's not real. That is an imagined, that's false fear. It's a lie. 
And you can now put that off to the side. Thank you. Goodbye. The 30% though of stuff that was real, now I had a question of like, well, what do you do with the real fear? And for me, the real fear was, uh, I, you know, like the thing I said in the book, we'll tell anyone, um, I think a plan is the antidote to fear. And so yes. like the question was, okay, if these fears are real, like I'm going to have to face these fears, they're not going away. How do I plan to handle them when they come up so that having that plan affords me this opportunity to cultivate courage to move toward them? And in a wild way, um, when, you, when you've eliminated the imagined and prepared for the real, yeah. fear actually changes form. Now, fear, I don't throw rocks at me, but fear has actually become an invitation, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I feel afraid of something and I now know that I can, uh, can get to the bottom of whether that fear is real or not and understand what I would need to do to be prepared to face that fear, I only have one choice. I have to walk toward it and challenge myself to face it so that I can understand what I'm being invited to learn from it. Mm -hmm. And every time I have, even though like, you know, like, I'm, like we were doing, we did these speeches yesterday. Heidi's so weird. I love her, but she is terrified of speaking on stage. Like she crushes, crushes her speeches. She did a great interview with you. Anytime that she's on live, like we had hundreds of people in our coaching community last night for two and a half hours. She is kills, is amazing. And yeah. yet this is, this is a thing, right? And so I, when we, when I, we had been invited originally, they were like, look, we can do a Q and A with you, Heidi, we can do a keynote. And I was like, Heidi going to do a keynote. Like mm -hmm. she's got to, because this is an invitation for her to challenge this thing that she has fear for. And the invitation is here because the kind of impact that she's going to have is going to be, uh, it'll be, it'll be amplified when she's able to confront this and actually affect more people in person on stages in the future. And so she begrudgingly agreed back then. And we got to, you know, two nights ago, we're sitting here preparing, like, she's like, I think I'm going to throw up. Like, no. You're not. It's going to be great. We're driving there yesterday. She's like, look me in the face. I'm like, I'm driving down the freeway. Look me in the face. All right. I looked her in the face. She said, you cannot walk into the auditorium. You cannot listen to me speak. I was like, okay, that's fine. There were some conditions around how she was going to face her fear, but she faced it. Right. Yeah. And so like, I would argue for any of you that's listening, like when you find yourself confronted by something that scares you, if you can develop a plan. And she did develop a plan, right? I developed a plan. I'm going to prepare in this way. I'm going to stay focused on serving the audience. I'm going to try and do stories that will allow them to see themselves in them. Like when she prepared, she ended up having an effective delivery. And yeah, she's still hard on herself. They didn't think she did as good a job as she liked, but it's, she's one step closer to overcoming this fear because of the fact that she faced it. She went through it. It didn't kill her. She now has a data point that says, hey, guess what? When I decide to put myself into this space that I'm afraid of, I will survive it. I will have a positive effect. I see it as an invitation, right? Doing this men's conference was an invitation. I was scared when it was brought up to me by somebody else that, hey, do you want to do this, Dave? And I was like, I don't know that I am going to be able to do it without being frightened by it, but I got to say yes. Yeah. And, you know, like... <laughs> It ain't going to make money. That's okay. 
it is going to change. Uh, it's going to change some people's lives, yeah. and that is the intended outcome. It is going to, but more than anything, it is going to provide us data. Right? We're going to find out what of the three days of programming of the eighteen people we have coming to speak of the activities that we've created between classroom stuff or throwing axes and shooting bows and arrows. Like, we're going to find out what are the things that men actually want to do if you get in, get them together for three days. And that was the point. Right. And I'm going to find out, is this something that you actually love, actually want to do, or is it not? So, you know, I got three weeks of having a little bit of that jittery feeling, but yeah. if I don't have those jittery feelings, I'm not, I'm not pushing myself outside of comfort. And I'm certainly then in that instance, not growing. So um, this is all a, you know, a pursuit for growth because of seeing fear as an invitation. I don't even know what the question was, Mindy. I just started no, rambling. Was- here we are. That was perfect. That was absolutely perfect. And I wish, and, and by the way, your event's going to be fantastic. I've seen the lineup. My husband Thank is going, you. he's excited. Let's go. It's going to be great. Um, but yeah, I think personally, I always feel you say, you say, make a plan and, and, you know, face your fear down and, and take a step into it. And, and anytime I'm afraid of something, if I, the second I take action, I feel better. And I, I wish that I were a therapist and I could explain to us our physiology or our chemistry and why that is, but I'm a huge believer in just taking action and you'll feel better. 100%. So. And the thing is like, uh, I, I've been big on like pushing myself in physical challenges, the idea of like running a marathon or mm-hmm. trying to climb a mountain or whatever it ends up being the way that when you do something, you see something you can't unsee, you know, something you can't unknow, you know, have confirmation of what is possible. And yeah. so when you have fear, it's the same kind of thing. Action inside of your fear allows you to create evidence that you can see and now not unsee things you know and cannot unknow. We're in the midst of this, uh, you know, physical challenge or get fit challenge. I mean, that you were also part of. God bless you. And uh, inside of the community, people are like, "Oh my goodness, I finished this metcon or this hit training or this workout today or whatever." And I never thought that I could do that many reps or that many exercises or that many. And now that I know, ah, it's almost like you begrudgingly now have evidence of what you are capable of. You now know that you can do it. And when you know you can, you can't unknow it. And that's part of what the invitation of fear is. It's like walk into the space, not just survive it, but thrive through it. And now reframe what you think yourself to be capable of for the rest of time. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's the evidence of courage is what it is, you know, which makes the fear smaller. Right. So God, I have like 86 more questions I want to ask you. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you, um, you know, we're, we're at the beginning of a year. Where is this question? We are, Oh, I really want to ask you this question. Um, so we're we're at the beginning of of a year and you know people are making goals they're you know they're thinking about how they want to live better this year all of the things that they want to do um a lot of these goals that people might be thinking about may scare them so when you are evaluating a goal or something that you want to take on for yourself 
Um, you know, and I and I think that we're afraid of it because there's there's some risk involved in potentially doing that thing, whatever the risk is. So how do you weigh for yourself the risk against the the outcome potentially and decide whether or not you want to take something on that's really big and scary? Mm. Well, I mean, I, I I'm trying like the 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 word like they have this little like uh bracelet making station i love a bracelet making station yeah. we could tap a little word into a little circle of metal nothing wrong i don't with know that. who made up i don't know who came up with this idea but it's going to take off uh i i type i put in the word congruent name of the conference that i'm doing too but like working on alignment or congruency or integrity in my life is everything that i'm trying to work on in real time and and in the answer to this question like if you can cast a vision for where you believe yourself to be going whether it's really sitting with your intuition or knowing or sitting in prayer and understanding what you believe God has called you to do, or, uh, you know, like whatever it is, cast the vision for where you think you're going to go. The question that you have to ask is, well, what would need to become true between now and then to allow that vision to actually have a chance at survival at, at becoming. And so I understand that, Hey, I can control a single thing. I can't change anything that's ever happened in the past, worrying about the future, will not change it, trying to engineer things so that the universe or the world shows up to me in a certain way, ain't going to make that happen. The only thing that I can control is how I show up in these next 24 hours. And so the goals that I make and the micro goals that end up becoming a part of my every day, that 24 hours that I can control, I want to try and create integrity between who I'd have to be in that 24 hours to become the version of who I'm meant to be 20, 20, 20, 20, 24 days, 24 months, 24 years from now. And so the question really ends up being, all right, where do you think you're going? And what do you think you'd need to be working on goal-wise to actually get you a step closer now? And the thing that I think usually throws people off and why resolutions never work, and a lot of times people can be excited about goal-setting today and not as excited about goal setting two or three or five months into the year is that we tend to set goals that are unrealistic. <laughs> we um, are we're caught up in the you know excitement of this being the new year and it's a new me and I'm going to chase the things. And then we set goals that are that, that just set us up for failure. And so, and I know Heidi probably talked to you about this in her conversation with you as well. Like, inside of our in this fitness community that we've been working on, like setting very very realistic goals so that you can create something that she's called uh, integrity momentum. Like just yeah. if you can make and keep promises to yourself on consecutive days, over time, stack wins, you will allow yourself belief in self that you can build on and continue to move forward with. And so for me, I, instead of like, you know, like I used to be a big, like five years from now, kind of dreamer. And then I saw so many things change in such a short window of time that the idea, like five years ago, I was sitting in an office at the Walt Disney Company. Like I was wearing a suit and tie every day. I was not very happy. And I did not yet have a single conversation about Austin, Texas, right? Like five, like I, the five-year-ago version of me couldn't appreciate how happy I'd be, how handsome Facial hair would look on my beautiful right? face. No, no idea. If I'd have known this, I would have done it years ago. But 
Um, so the, I'm not, that was a joke, everybody. Uh, but the idea of casting five years from now goals for me, uh, it just feels like a, long, a pretty long window. Mm-hmm. Um, Heidi and I have been talking a lot lately about, you know, like they say that like life goes in seven year cycles, but I think we're running in like three year cycles, you yeah. know, like we're, we're, and when I say three year cycles, I mean, like we are fundamentally completely new people every three years, at least she and I are like, I am unrecognizable in like the best way. Thank you very much. Uh, when I did my speech yesterday, there's a speaking wheel that comes up and half of the videos of me are hair free. Dave yeah. don't recognize that guy. A lot of sadness in that dude's eyes and, uh, and, and, and maybe not, uh, as much growth, the kind of growth that comes through going through hard things, right? I am a completely different person than the person I was in 2019. Yay for that. But it also means that I'm going to be a completely different person in 2025 than yeah. I am in 2022. So when it comes to me setting goals, I tend to be a little bit more shorter term. Like a year from now, what am I trying to achieve that would have me closer to my long-term hoped for mission of honoring the, the intention of a creator that put me here to do great things and have big impact on this world. Uh, and I've asked the question more in the like, what do I need in this season kind of thing for the next, you know, 30 to 90 days worth of time? Like, what are the things that I can do practically that would keep me moving toward that goal at the end of the year? And so um, having goals that are reasonable, manageable, that let you create integrity, keep promises with yourself, stack those wins over time and shorten that time horizon. That's been, that's been my take. Okay. Other people, by the way, they might be more long-term goal driven and maybe their goal doesn't change the way that my goals have changed. But like, I, I, there's so much that I don't yet know about myself, about the world, about life. Yeah. That the idea that I could understand what I'm headed towards five years from now feels obscene. It's just crazy yeah. to me because I there's just so much, even just in the last year, that I have a completely different perspective on mm-hmm. that I, I get excited about it. Like it truly, yeah. it feels like the sky ends up being the limit, but also I don't want to hold myself to the confines of what ends up feeling like um, an imagination that doesn't have nearly the kind of opportunity that you might otherwise find in uh, the real world when it actually avails itself over time to you. Right. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And I I think the other thing that I would throw out there too, is that I think myself included, I've been guilty of it so many times in the past, but I think one of the things that people, um, one of the mistakes people make when setting goals is this sort of all or nothing mentality. And the second you slip up or you, you know, whatever insert, you know, whatever example here that goes sort of against your goal, people give up um, and, and think that they, you know, it's not in them or I messed up. So I'm going to quit, you know, those sorts of things. Um, And it's just not that way. You've got you know, tomorrow and the next day after that and the next day after that to try again. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our, our nutrition, we have like a nutrition expert that's a part of our little challenge right now. His name's Coach Doxy. And we were talking to the group last night. He said, you know, if you made an appointment with a friend for lunch and he said, meet you at 12 and then that person didn't show up the first day, you'd give him some grace. Oh, okay, great. That's fine. But if the very next day you made an appointment at 12, didn't show up, your faith or trust in them would certainly be compromised. You might think yeah. twice about believing them. Um, we are making that appointment with ourselves all the time. 
And yet we are really inconsistent with how often we tend to show up when we say that we will. And in that have created the same kind of breach of trust with ourself that then has us not even thinking that we could be depended on to follow through with the goal. And so part of why setting reasonable goals and stacking those wins ends up being important is that you have to reestablish some trust with yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to, over time, make and keep promises in a way that has you believing that when you say you're going to do something that you will, so that when you set a goal, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm that person that follows through. I'm that person that's there at 12 when I said I was going to be there and not, oh, I don't know. You only showed up two of 10 times in the last two months. I'm not sure if you're going to actually, you know, follow through. So it's important for us to, I think, establish things that we can over time consistently do to have us believing in and and establishing that trust with ourselves. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm watching the time. I know that you've probably got other things that you have to get off and do. I could be here for the rest of my life. Honestly, oh. I have nothing else happening. So let's just oh. talk for literally okay. ever. Hi, Marlene. I, I didn't see you there. How are you doing? Do you have time for maybe, let's say, two questions from oh, yes. the audience? Let's, who's we'll got do it for, a question we'll, I'll for do me? it as long as you want. Yeah. Oh, you're so nice. I've got a kid home sick with COVID, so I am not even allowed to go to my house. Let's just be yeah. clear. So I am just hanging out until I get an all clear from the quarantine bill. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I wouldn't, um, mind, I wouldn't mind talking or... Do yeah, we, no, go right ahead, Colleen. Colleen, get in here. <laughs> Dave, I want to say thank you, because when you were on your patio piece, I was going through stuff at the same time. And... Um, uh, uh, um, sorry, emotional, because my life has changed in the last two years as well. And I'm a motivational speaker. I'm also a teacher, so I tutor. And I'm also an actress. I have whatever. But um, over the last two years, like, it's really come out, like, the heart that I have. Like, I'm an empath, and um, I've learned a lot in the last two years about myself. And uh, I'm very emotional right now, sorry. because Don't I'm- apologize for being emotional. I love emotion. I'll cry just... Eating a PB&J later on today in now, honor of now, you. It'll be great. So, some of my fears are I just had to remove myself from a lot of people in life because not everybody's nice. And, you know, with that fear, I embrace that. And I'm like, no, my heart is a giant, giant heart and I need to protect myself. And so I just removed. And with that came out this beautiful person in me, like this beautiful, beautiful, loving heart, caring. And then this shining person came out of me of who I truly am. And um, I want to thank you because you, through that, you sharing your heart and being who you are, I also became sharing my heart and who I am and being honest and true. And and I removed a lot of people in my life and I have the most beautiful friends in my life. Um, the most beautiful, and I'm very careful of who I let into my life. I know that if I live near you guys, that you would be one of my true friends because your heart is safe and kind and caring. And I love that you help the world by getting everybody your honesty, but your kindness and your heart. We need more of that in life. And dining that. So, Thank you, because I walked through you with the patio piece, and I I changed with you at the same time. I was going through my own stuff, and my own beauty came out. Like I am the most beautiful person in the world, and oh. and um, 
So thank you. And you have a giant heart and a giant soul. So please never change. You are so sweet. Mindy, let's just do this all day. Okay, let's come I'm on. In. Who <laughs> wants to go next? Goodness. <laughs> Colleen, that was amazing. I love you. Yeah. Thank you. Colleen, I'm so glad that you've you know maybe made the changes that you've made. You deserve the best. And if you've got good people in your life now, good for you. That's that's what you deserve. Thanks, Mindy. Yeah, absolutely. Christine, do you have a question? Oh my gosh, I sure do. Yeah. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi Christine. Hi, Dave. Oh my God. I cannot believe after all this time I'm actually speaking to you live. This is so <laughs> I can't, crazy. I've been waiting to talk to you too, Christine. So it's um, the same. Trust. Yeah, you, you probably think I'm stalking you because I'm in the challenge and now I'm on this call. Christine, um, are you looking at uh, me through the back uh, sliding glass window right now? That weird, that feels strange. No, no, no. That's not you. That's somebody else in the challenge. Never I'm like, mind. Am I? No. <laughs> also, I saw you working out at the beginning. So high five. I was. I wasn't quite done. And I'm like, I'm probably shaking all over the place. And they're like, please stop doing that. No, Blair Witch um, 4 was amazing to watch today. So thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> so anyway, uh, first of all, um, I agree with Colleen. You have really been inspirational i mean hated to see you going through what you went through really hated it like broke my heart um but i i just see such a change in you i was at rise dallas hi mindy um mindy changed everybody's world that day and um you know just having her there and all of that but anywho seeing what you went through and then you meeting heidi who oh my god I didn't even really know Heidi until you started dating her and it came Neither out and then she is just the most wonderful person. And I, um, I want to squeeze her one day, but beside all that, um, I wanted to ask you about writing your book, your first uh-huh. book, because I am trying to be brave and write my first book. And you and I are similar in a lot of ways because when you're with Rachel she was the go-getter, the get up at five o'clock, get everything done and, you know, boom, go through her day. And you were more of the, well, I'm not so motivated. And um, I have these fears and I don't really know what I'm doing and I'm stepping into a new space. So I wanted to ask you kind of how you, how you did that, how you started that process from going from a completely different you know, world to then trying to write a book. How did you even begin to do that? Because I kind of get stuck and I don't know how to, how to start, I guess. Well, number one, like the choice to do it is the first big one. So good work. You've made the first and hardest choice. The, the, like the work of a book is one part, like there's some discipline around it because you just have to get in a rhythm of actually getting words on a page. Like the hardest part of writing a book putting the words on the page, right? Um, but for me, and I don't know, I think people do it all different kinds of ways, but um, I talked to Mindy about this when she was getting ready to start hers. Like, I tend to be write out every single story that you think you can tell about your life. Don't try and ascribe like what learning or teaching you're gonna, what are all of the interesting stories of all of the things, if you were to cocktail party, if you were back on the dating scene again and you're trying to like, Tell the person that you want to be partners with a thing that you think that they would find funny or interesting or, wow, I can't believe it about you. What are the stories? Just make a list of all of the stories. Okay. Put the stories on the side. Now, make a list of the kinds of things you'd hope for the reader to take away from the book. 
Like, what is the intention of the book? And is there then a way with you having now declared what you're hoping they will get from this? Like, you almost have to like, if you were going to put a trailer for the book, or if you were going to put an ad for the book, how would you in 60 seconds or less convince someone that this is the thing that they need because of the need that you are serving, right? Like you have a strength in your experiences or in your wisdom or in their research methodology or the way that you're organizing it and they have needs. How are you matching your strengths to their needs? What's, what are you satisfying? And then you have to, once you've identified what it is that you're trying to satisfy, how do you break it into something that you can take them through journey wise? So what's the arc, right? For me, like with Built Through Courage, it was uh, start understanding where you are, cast a vision for where you want to go. Let's practically understand what it's going to take to get there. Forget out of your own way. It was here are the 20 lies that I believe that kept me from my truth or that kept me from being the best version of myself. And so then I, I knew, all right, in the 20 lies version, the, the it was just like a it was like a heartbeat monitor, like just one chapter. They didn't necessarily connect to the previous chapter, but it was 20. So there was a frame for this one. It was a map, right? I decided to take you on a journey from where you are to where you want to go and what it's going to take to get there. But you have to decide what is the, what's the arc of what you're going to take people through. Once you have the arc, now you go back to the stories and you try to figure out which stories are going to help you take them on that journey because of the way that each of those individual stories illustrate one of the points that would help move the reader from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three. And then, you know, for me, I always wanted to have like, well, what is the thing that I would hope for them to take away at the end of each chapter, which is where my logbook or the journaling prompts ended up coming from so that it could go from passive listening or reading to active learning. And I would challenge you, like, what is the thing? What's the intended outcome of each individual chapter? Because if you can identify it, now you've created an outline. And when you sit down to put words on paper, you know what your goal is for that chapter. All right. In this, my intended outcome is to have them walking away with an ability to dive deeper into identity. Okay, so now what I do, I took a, a note, a pack of note cards, and I got a bulletin board, and I put the entire thing up, and I knew, like, okay, boom, there's the identity one, and even inside of identity, I then took the two stories that I was going to tell about identity, I put those on cards underneath identity, and I created something that looked like a, you know, like the people that try to solve crimes on CSI, except it didn't have string. Right. Like it looked like a, a maniac's lab. But every time I sat down, I knew exactly what I had to do. And because I appreciated that this was like one brick at a time to help build the wall. Um, you know, every time I finished telling a story, I got to take the pin out of the old cork board, take that note card down, and I could visually see the kind of progress I was making for what would inevitably be the entire book. And so for me, like I spent a lot of time building out that maniac's wall <laughs> and a shorter amount of time, to be honest, like once I knew what it was that I was writing, I, I actually write pretty fast. I, so I started the book, like I say, in like February, March, 
when I, when I say started, I really was like creating the outline. I would write a little bit, but really the outline. I probably wrote most of the book in like November, December of 20 for it to come out in March of 21. So like it was, and so our October of October of 20. So it was, it, you know, like it, it was pretty quick, a pretty quick turnaround once I actually knew what the frame was. So the more that you can do like pre-work wise to like get your arc, to get your stories, to get the individual chapters, the intention of the book, but then also the intention of each individual chapter. That's what worked for me. Whether it works for you or not, I don't know, but it's a good place to start. And I will say, I, you, you shared that process with me and I, I followed a very similar process. I wrote my book in two months. So yeah. it's it's a really good way to to think it through and outline it. And, you know, writing the chapters is so easy when you've got that kind of clarity and thought. So um, I um, wish that we could stay here all day asking you more questions. But I, I do just want to talk about your fitness challenge again for one more second. I don't know if people can still register or not or if it's closed at this point. Oh, I'm, I'm, I know a guy. I'm sure if someone wanted to. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it is, but it's still like we're in the first week. So I'm sure that like, if so, I can, I can throw you a link if you guys are interested, but um, it's a thing that usually uh, wraps up the, like the first day of the, of the challenge in terms of new registrants. But if someone was interested, let me know and I'll, I'll send you a link that you can get into it for. I will definitely do that. And, um, and again, I've been, I actually registered a, a day and a half ago, I think, and just the nuggets of life-changing wisdom that I've got. It's, it's amazing. You guys have done such a good job. Um, what is next for you? What do you have on the horizon? So we just kicked off this challenge this, uh, last Monday. So we've got, you know, this for, the eight weeks worth of time, it's great because there's a few different components. There's a nutrition education and a nutrition coaching component. I have uh, no involvement, thank God, for the attendees since I know nothing about nutrition. But um, I mean, Heidi is a genius and we have this nutrition expert that is also part of it. Um, but we've got, a, we've got a VIP group that we're taking people through a, a whole bunch of mindset and motivation, not motivation, but mindset and more of the, the, the mental health pieces of health as opposed to the physical um, pieces. Um, I do have this men's conference that's coming up, which is exciting. Uh, I've got this tea time book that's going to come out for kids for Father's Day, which I'm excited about. And I'm pushing myself to get my next pitch from a next book into the publisher in April. So I've got three months now to just kind of spend some time thinking about what it is that I want to do next. Mm. And I'm not sure, to be honest, like I've got a handful of things that I've written out as possibilities. And it's interesting when you, when you're going to do a book, like it has to be something that you will be excited to talk about for a decade because yeah. you pour so much into it, but also it becomes like, it's the basis of the kind of stuff that I end up coaching on or speaking on stages about. And, I just want to, I want to make sure that I'm not rushing into something that I'm not going to be excited to talk about. So um, I'm working on that. Uh, I'm still doing the podcast on Thursdays and Heidi and I are launching a podcast called Squirrel on Mondays. Oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> just, I'm so excited to hear that. <laughs> she and I talking about literally nothing and everything every week. So that'll Works be fun too. Health, so. Yeah, I know. I know. Um and I mean, like I'm, I'm working on how can I spend as much time with my kids and, uh, and as, uh, Heidi's continuing to ramp up and do some more fun and interesting stuff, you know, how can I be supportive of her? We're, we're working on 
this challenge together, obviously, but we're also close to doing something inside of the kids supplement space, which uh, I've never had any, I've never done anything inside of before, but as a father of four, her mother of four, we give our kids a lot of uh, vitamins and supplements and why not? She, uh, she, we've, we've got some great contacts. The, uh, the idea of being in the gummy business is not something I ever thought myself uh, a person who would be, but uh, not long from now. That's amazing. Sure, you have sure a lot of free be. time is what you're telling yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, running, running and gunning as much as I can, trying to still stay focused on my personal, like, you know, like my mental health is a priority. And so the more that I can, you know, make sure I'm carving out my time with my therapist or having my time in, in peace and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, like it's, I, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in a, I'm in a cool place right now where I love the stuff that I'm doing. And I also, um, I'm excited about the things that I haven't even yet necessarily fully given as much time as I know I will inevitably give to. Like when I get out of the men's conference and we have a conversation about what worked and didn't, will it be that we're putting another one on sale for the fall? I don't know. Like Heidi and I are doing an event here in Phoenix on the back end of the fitness challenge in April, and it's going to be rad. But it's also an exclusive to the people that are in the fitness challenge kind of thing. So, you know, there's, I don't know, 11 or 1200 people that are in the challenge. If you did, well, good news. We've got 200 people, uh, you know, of availability to come into Phoenix for a couple of days and have fun, hang out, listen to a bunch of great speakers. We've never done this ourselves. So, again, like we're putting our toe into some water to see what works and what doesn't. And as we learn from it, will it, will it ultimately or uh, another conference in the end of the year or something yeah. like that. Who knows? I don't know. You know, I'm taking it as it comes. Well, that all sounds fantastic. And I obviously, I wish you nothing but the the best and, and the most, the, the greatest success with all of the things that are to come. It sounds really exciting. And again, I just thank you for sharing your time and your, your, your humanness with, with us today. You're, you're fantastic. I am very human. Don't worry about that. That'll always be on display. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dave. And thank of course. All of you thank for, you, guys. Thank all of you for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mindy. Right. Thank you for listening. I hope this episode has left you feeling inspired, a little less alone, and ready to take your own challenges, to find the gifts within them, and to use those gifts to make the world a better place. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you'd leave a rating or a review. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button so we can keep bringing you great content and maybe share it with a friend or two. You can also follow me on Instagram at Mindy Henderson Speaks. Thanks, everyone. Until next time, go be the light we all need in this world.